Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life. Ordinary Life is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I'm Bill Curley and this is... Holly Hudley. How was your Halloween? I got high praise for it, so I'm just going to take the win. It's been a rough year. Really? Yeah. yeah. So did you have trick-or-treaters come to your house? We didn't pass out any candy. We made a scavenger hunt for my kids and they declared it the best Halloween ever. So I, again, I'm just going to take the win. Okay. <laughs> we did have trick-or-treaters come. Yeah. The scariest people were those without masks. Yeah, sure. I mean, you're supposed to wear a mask right now. Yeah. So I'm going to continue being a gentle nag. Is this working? It's, it's working once it hooks up. Uh, about the town hall meetings that are going to be held at St. Paul's virtually on Sunday afternoon, November the 15th at 4, and Tuesday evening, November the 17th at 7. Uh, this is a step forward for us in deciding what the future is going to look like about reopening and a number of other things. So no matter what your level of involvement is at St. Paul's, um, you are a parent as a child here, whatever your level of involvement, whether you remember or not, if you can pick one of those times and be involved in that, that, that will be good. So today, Holly and I are going to process our experience with Dr. Jackie Lewis, uh, but also the time that we spent with Cindy Wigglesworth yeah. on the podcast this week. If you all have not seen that. Or listened. Li I mean, listen to yeah. that. Please do. It's such a great conversation. And Cindy, thank you for joining us. That was such a gift. Um, she's such a, she's another wisdom teacher. Yeah. So. Yeah. When her book came out um, some few years ago of SQ21, I was recommending it to everyone and I still do. I think it's a very helpful, practical book that fits my goal of contributing to both uh, religious and spiritual literacy. And what Cindy's done in this book is come up with a way to um, have a very faith-friendly way of thinking about spirituality. Mm -hmm. So it's not along any kind of sectarian line whatsoever. You've read the book. Mm -hmm. It's been some time, but and I didn't reread it before our conversation, but it reminds me a lot of just the work of Diarmuid Omiraku, who it's, it's about growing up. Um, growing into a mature spirituality and being able to live in the world in this way. I'm going to be quoting him. And part of what I will say today uh, at the conclusion of this class, and I want you to know that I am in conversation with him and he is going to do a webinar with us sometime after the first of the year. I think we'll wait and get on the other side of the Advent Christmas season and then we have a list of people, a growing list of people that we hope to invite. Also, as we approach the end of the year, uh, it has been the custom of Ordinary Life to make gifts. Mm -hmm. And yes. you want to talk about that process? Sure. So every year, as you um, guys have generously donated to our class, uh, we are able to contribute those funds to not area nonprofits that are generally working to empower the poor and underserved communities in and around Houston. So this year is no different. Um, thank you for the donations we've received. And any requests for funds 
is on the website now. So you can, and we have put it in the constant contact that goes out to the class. Um, you click on that link and just fill out the form, send it to me via email, and we'll be able to determine where funds are needed this year. Um, I think we'd love to focus on things that are doing COVID relief, um, food scarcity, rent relief, racial justice, but that's, it's not limited to that, but just given this year for sure, if you have something that you're involved in, in any of those um, categories, please, please apply. As usual, thank you to Tim Leatherwood, John Watson, Olivia Watson, William Budge. Uh, they are our ever alert audience. Are you being sarcastic? Me? I wouldn't be sarcastic about anything. Um, they're both looking at us with their mouths open, like, we hang on every word y'all say. <laughs> so no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, I am so glad that you have joined us today. Everybody's a pajama person these days, but mm. you got an extra hour of sleep today. Mm. I found this graphic this week, and I I didn't know where to put it in the. Yeah, but it, it sort of frames it nicely, right? The racial justice watch. Any day now. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Someday. Mm-hmm. It makes me think about how. Um, at, Martin Luther King wrote about patience being a privilege, right? That it is usually those who are privileged or in power who can say, wait a minute, not yet, it's coming, we're working on it. Um, and, you know, Martin Luther King wrote the fierce urgency of now, and that couldn't be more true. So, yeah. So this week, as we said, we had the great privilege of talking with Cindy Wigglesworth on our podcast in between. Um, and it felt like a perfect follow-up to some of what Jackie Lewis guided us through a couple weeks ago. Their voices are definitely inspiring what we've written today and how we've sort of framed this um, and we go off a little bit. <laughs> um, but any deep spiritual change, we go through phases, just like in life development or human development. My son was working on a math worksheet the other day in which he had to identify patterns in a series of numbers. And one in particular went from one to three to two to four to three, to five, and so on. So it jumped forward two and back one, forward two, back one. That's about how spiritual development works, I think. We, we find ourselves moving forward and then something sets us back. And we may be in one of those phases right now where we feel a bit set back, but forward movement may be happening. So I'm framing that in a way as moving from awakening to disruption or individuation to integration. In the disruption, there are still new awakenings that occur in that phase, to, which can lead us into dark and light spaces. And awakenings often demand change of us if we are going to take it seriously. Today we're talking about awakening or reawakening to the beloved community or the empowered and the empowering community. I want to preface this a little bit with some framing around that concept of the beloved community. It goes further back even than Jesus, though that's how we should hear his talk about the kingdom of God. What did, um, is it the new book you're reading that said that, that what that could have literally translated in as the empowered and empowering community? Yeah, Daramut argues, and I oh, think fairly convincingly, yeah. in uh, the book that we're recommending, 
when the disciple arrived. Yes, that's right. Uh, he, yeah. he argues that very likely Jesus himself never used the phrase that appears in the Greek New Testament as the kingdom of God or the rule of God right. because Jesus was not an empire person. Right. Yeah, so he didn't speak in terms of kingdoms, in terms of pyramids. He tried to disrupt the pyramid as we've uh, spoken about. And I, it reminds me of what Sarah Grant said. So this is true about Jesus and his work in the world, which was it wasn't the way because Jesus walked it. Jesus walked it because it was the way. So framing the beloved community as the way. This is our summons and we are being asked, can we walk in the way? Any call to wisdom must and does uphold the dignity and integrity of the whole community not just part, and especially not just those in power. At the turn of the 20th century, American idealist philosopher Josiah Royce explored the ideas of loyalty and agape, or evolutionary love, as foundational to community. He thought this was an individual process, so in other words, that relationships were transformed via an individual transformation. So if the individual did his work, then the society could be transformed, which puts all of the onus on the individual doing his or her work. He posited that to be is to be uniquely related to a whole. That is in part true. Individual work does matter, but it is not the whole of it. It is very American to focus on the strength and the creativity of the individual alone. But if there is no community or ritual in place to provide a soft place to land, so to speak, which came up a lot in our conversation with Cindy, the, the need for collective, for receiving, being received at the, at the end of an individual journey. So the efforts don't matter if the individual comes back alone. Then Howard Thurman took the concept of the beloved community and I think expanded Royce's um, thinking. He, was a, he studied Royce, and he was one of the first black leaders to meet Gandhi. And after this encounter, he found himself forever changed. He, first, he felt called to create a community that was intentionally about eschewing self or societally imposed racial and religious boundaries. He realized the need for the awakened individual to have a place to come home to, a soft place to land. Gandhi's practice was called satyagara, or soul force. I love that translation, that the beloved community is our soul force. With this force, he founded the first interfaith and interracial congregation in the United States, which was called the Church for the Fellowship of All People. It still exists in San Francisco. This can't just happen because we want to be friends with people of other faiths or other races. This can only happen when the value that undergirds any hopes for friendship is liberation. It's not a program, but a way of being human. Thurman also advised Martin Luther King, whose commitment to nonviolence was born out of love, a love for his people, and a love even for American and Christian ideals, about, albeit ideals we've yet to fulfill completely. King's idea of the beloved community was one committed to a kind of praxis defined by mutuality. He did not think the individual could uphold this on his own. So the community was for the expressed purpose of nurturing individuals who were centers of consciousness and points of light. That's how he wrote it. The individual commitment to wholeness, to equity and justice for all, 
was the glue of the beloved community. So again, the part and the whole must be continually working and forming together. Every individual lives inside of a system, so his or her transformation is inevitably impacted by the rules of that system. And recognizing how these rules govern our lives and any unconscious or conscious belief on our part is part of the first phase of awakening. Jackie's question in her handout a couple weeks ago was, what are the stated norms in our system? She too is an inheritor of the beloved community and trying to form that in her own congregation at Middle Church. So what are the stated norms in our system and what are the implicit ones? By the way, I want to remind you that you can go onto the Ordinary Life website and under the menu item resources, you can find the handout um, that Dr. Jackie Lewis shared with us. It's a really good resource for conversation starters, for um, building the kind of community that we're talking about today. Uh, and it, I think that we may return and talk about this more next week after the election because I think this is a topic that's really, really worth talking about. So I, I really encourage you to look at that resource, print it out and, and talk about it in your family with friends. And also, um, if you've not done so, listen to the podcast with Cindy Wigglesworth. Um, you can access that through the Ordinary Life website as well. Um, that conversation was so energizing. It was so energizing. And so yeah. informative. I liked Cindy's distinction of whether one is personally intentionally racist or not, mm -hmm. or whether one is participating in a racist system, sometimes with awareness, often not. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's certainly been true for me. Oh, sure, me too. Yeah. Um, I think that this sounds arrogant, but you know, I consider myself a pretty aware person, but since the events following maybe the, the outbreak in Charlottesville, the riots in Charlottesville, which preceded the George Floyd death, um, I've learned so much mm. about this, mm -hmm. about the difference between uh, um, racist and being I'm not a racist to I'm anti-racist. Yeah, yeah, that, that's Ibram Kendi's work, right? We, he says we're all on a spectrum of inhabiting racism to some degree and to be anti-racist is to reject some of those unconscious things. And, and I, I think another thing that I would like for our work to be contributing to is to deal with the sense of impotency that people, that white, many white people feel around the issue of racism and, and um, developing anti-racist attitudes and behaviors. It's, well, I know what's going on, but what really, what can I do about it? I don't have any power to do anything about it. And the mandate of Jesus is to create, again, get the words. It's a community of empowerment and an empowered community. So that, that's what Jesus invited people into. Mm -hmm. If you come into this community, we together as a collective are going to have power. And that empowerment um, does, does something in the world. Still around. So um, 
I, I also found uh, her acceptance of what's currently going on in our society with all the far-right nastiness very refreshing and hopeful. She said something like this. She said that there's been an infection or a sickness that's been hidden beneath the surface of our culture for a long, 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 long time. And since the murder of George Floyd, uh, this boil has been lanced. And the poison has come out for everyone to see and to deal with. And I think framing it this way as a necessary and helpful step forward is a very wise and useful way to think about what's going on in our culture. Uh, I also liked her notion of having had malware insta installed in our brains by the system that we're born into and that we need to get that out of our operating system. I first heard a version of this years ago in the works uh, that I learned from Richard War. Roar talked about we have two operating systems. One of them is called the egoic operating system and one is called the self-operating system. And the egoic operating system usually runs and ruins our lives until we become aware of it and get in a position to um, put something else in its place. It's a very, very wise way uh, of thinking. And I love Cindy's notion of polarity thinking. Mm -hmm. And I even followed up on one of the books that she recommended. The example that she used was from parenting. And she said, you know, mm. we have polarities in the way that we parent our children. Um, and called the tough tender polarity. Sometimes we need to be tough with kids and sometimes we need to be tender with them. And wisdom is in developing the awareness of what to do when. And, and I thought that was, was very wise. I do know that there is much to be done. There are actions to be taken. There are laws that need to be changed. There are methods of practicing, to use uh, Jackie Lewis's words, that need to be put in place that are currently not in place in our culture. There are signs of hope, maybe more so than in a long time. But I think, at the same time, the universe is not asking us merely to do something, though there is a lot to be done. We are invited to be something, to become the people we were meant to become. So as a spiritual teacher, I'm not interested in merely retrieving or even revitalizing the past. I believe that we have got to do the work that reworks the tradition. Mm. And that we've got to mobilize the wisdom that is in the tradition, in the teachings of Jesus, in a way that, he, that empowers us to participate in an evolving future. The evolving future is coming. And as Cindy said in the podcast, it may be 10 years, it may be 100 years, it may be longer. But we're in this evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. And we need to be aware of that and participate in it creatively. Revelation is not something that is found back there somewhere. It's found in the unfolding process of our mutually learning and interpersonal enrichment. Now, maybe that's, as Holly says, starts with intrapersonal enrichment, but if it doesn't go to interpersonal and reach out across the horizontal axis, we're not moving in the direction of creating that community 
that seeks to practice distributive justice for all the members in that community. The reactionary fundamentalism that is using its very big megaphone today, both in politics and in religion, is trying to secure uh, security and simplicity and certainty. It is bound to fail. I don't know when. And it's bound to fail not just because it's not true, which it isn't, but it's bound to fail because it doesn't work. It doesn't build a society that enhances growth and allows people to flourish. This is one of the major things we're dealing with in our time. It is one of the reasons that each of us must commit to growing spiritually. Our inherited white male folk religion is simply not capable of dealing with the evolutionary threshold on which we stand. The key words that mark our future are growth, change, and complexity. Fundamentalism is against all three of these things. But these are the things, if you go back and read the teachings of Jesus, that Jesus was interested in facilitating and preparing ground uh, uh, for growth in these things. This vision of the future, where we're working to build and inhabit the empowered and empowering community, is for everybody. It's for rich folks and poor folks. It's for white folks and people of color. But the more immediate benefits of the community are going to go to the black folks and the poor folks and the disadvantaged folks, the folks who have been discriminated against, the folks who have not had a voice in the system. This is one of the meanings of what Jesus meant when he said, the street people and the prostitutes are going to inherit the kingdom before you. Mm -hmm. I believe that. Yeah, I do too. You said the quote you just read before this um, makes me think of Viktor Frankl's uh, question that is essentially, what does life expect from us? Which is different than what do I expect of life? Right. And so it really gets into this participatory model. And I want to say that change is deeper and bigger than just the interpersonal work and deeper and bigger than the relational work. Because it's not just about friendship and becoming friends with people outside of our bubble. It's about wanting their freedom, dignity, and, uh, uh, and participation as much as you want your own. I love what Jer poet Jericho Brown said, which is, if you love me, you have to also love me politically. And, and that, I think, is where people kind of go, oh, but wait, wait, I, but we're friends. But it's bigger than friendship change on this level that we're talking about is bigger than just becoming friends with people who are outside of your bubble. So once we see the kind of explicit and implicit rules of our system, we can't unsee them. There is no going back once this seeing has happened. If you try to unsee it, you're in some level of denial. Teilhard de Chardin, mystic and Jesuit priest, wrote that he was making an attempt to see and to make others see what happens to man. Seeing, he says, we might say that the whole of life lies in that verb. And it is the human capacity to see the within and the without of things that allows us to name and change both the behaviors and the ideas of our systems. 
As you know, Brian Stevenson, one of my heroes, says that one of the implied truths of our system is that despite the civil rights movement and the passage of certain laws, hundreds of years of slavery and Jim Crow created a kind of accepted ethos. And that ethos thrives on the false idea that black folks are not as worthy as white folks. This is false. It's a false sentiment. We may all nod in agreement and say, well, sure, we agree that that's not true. But the problem is, is that societally, it still feels true. So part of the awakening to is to acknowledge this and be in the kind of sticky discomfort of it. So I am more and more convinced that um, what Teilhard said in this quote is true. I think the whole of spiritual life really is about seeing. Um, the Hindus who led the way into the first axial age developed an, um, a spiritual philosophy that was all about having insight. When Buddhism came along, and Buddhism uh, is this, um, this is a crude way to put it, but Buddhism is Hinduism with the gods stripped out. Mm -hmm. So when, when Buddhism came along, they defined this Hindu meditation practice the word commonly used for it today is Vipassana. Um, the literal translation of Vipassana from the Pali language, it sounds kind of arrogant because it means special seeing, mm -hmm. but it is special in the sense that it's about gaining insight to see what truly is. And those of you who have hung out with me and my teachings very long have no doubt heard that my way of putting this is that the central truth of and for spiritual practice is developing the ability to see what is. I put what is in quotation marks. And then developing the ability to be with that reality in a non-judgmental or non-reactive manner. I don't know if you know this or not, but um, my friend Don Williamson, who, who died a, a few months ago, He's the one who got us in Sherry and me yes. in, in, into yeah. insight meditation. That you said, no way I'm doing that. And Sherry said, I'm doing I'm it. Going the next <laughs> chance we have. Yeah. I would love 10 days of silence right now. I mean, ask me how I am after that, but. <laughs> I think it may be one of the most challenging things okay. I've ever done. I don't doubt it. I'm idealizing but it a it's, bit. It, it's the largest spiritual movement in the world. Mm call insight meditation. Look it up on the internet and, and you will see. So clearly, if you look at the Jesus narratives in light of this, he was all about getting people to see in one way or another. The healing miracles of restoring sight to the blind are parables mm -hmm. about getting people to see. Now, <clears throat> I had a professor of theology who said once, and please forgive his sexist language, he didn't know any better. He said, he who never dares a heresy never gains the truth. And I'm saying that because some folks are going to hear or may hear what I'm about to say and the rest of this presentation in its entirety is heretical. Mm -hmm. But if we don't dare the heresy, we don't, we don't gain the truth. I think we've come to the point, 
And our present crisis has brought us here. Where we can, if we dare, acknowledge that the path of Western politics and the path of Western religion is not so much wrong as it is simply no longer helpful. It's no longer useful. It has been helpful. It has been useful in getting us to this point. But I don't think that Western religion as currently taught and practiced is really capable of taking us into the empowered and empowering community. Not, for example, if we're still caught up in petty debates about the full inclusion of gay and lesbian people in the church. And certainly, when we have not gotten our act together about racial justice. Now, just to be clear, uh, the argument about full inclusion of the LBGTQ plus community is a debate about who's in and who's out. That debate went on in the time of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Who's clean, who's unclean, who's in and who's out. The conservatives want to exclude the LBGT community from full inclusion. The progressives want to include the LBGT plus community, but and this is seldom pointed out, do so in a way that excludes those who disagree with them. So you still have the binary division of who's in and who's out, the same dualistic and divided community. And both groups look back, backward, into some understanding of the foundational documents of the Christian scriptures to justify their position. Those documents were not written with our current understanding of human development, scientific and medical understanding, sociological and political and uh, economic realities and all the other things that we now know about human development and, and how the world works. Any first-year seminary student can tell you, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Now, I did not just say that the Bible is not a powerful depository of valuable teaching that can challenge us and comfort us, but challenge is what we need right now, to lead more enlarged lives and to bring enlarged living into the world. I am saying that the rules found in those documents are not helpful, useful, or relevant for living life right now. now if you doubt that, Go read the book of Leviticus and try the dietary lawsuit. Or try the, the parenting or marriage laws theory. You want to stone your child? Sometimes. <laughs> Have you been dipped? You want, you want to sell your daughter yes. to a neighboring tribe? Mm-hmm. Uh, or how about just saying, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, I divorced thee is a way to get rid of your wife. I'm sorry, but the law is not written. For women. Yeah, I know. That's part of the problem. It's part of the problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. Big, big part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Patriarchy. Mm -hmm. So one problem with seeing as a criteria for how to deal with our current crisis of racial injustice is that we see things differently with each developmental level of psychological and spiritual growth. We see what is 
differently. It's not, not that the what is changes, our seeing changes, our ability to see mm. and make sense. Now, probably the most helpful model of this, and Cindy pointed it out in, in our podcast, we did not have time then, and Holly and I do not have time now to go into it, but the mo most helpful model, I think, is probably that of spiral dynamics. Mm -hmm. Suffice it to say that a person who is at one level of cognitive psychological development sees things very differently from someone who is two, two levels above or two levels behind. And it reminds me of the George Carlin thing about, you know, the difference between an idiot and a maniac. <laughs> the idiot is the person in the car in front of you who is driving too slow. And the maniac is a person who passes you going yeah. too fast. Yeah. How did that idiot get out of the way? Mm -hmm. Did you see that maniac yeah, go down the right. street? <laughs> so being at a higher level doesn't mean better. It just means different. And we've got to get out of that way of thinking about how we see each other. It just means um, seeing differently. I'm going to give you two examples of seeing differently. First is the example of the guards in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. When the war came to an end and eventually the people responsible for that were brought to trial, the most important thing they wanted people to know about them was that they did not personally dislike the Jews. They were only doing what they had been told to do. They were only following orders. Somebody out the, outside that system can say, well, they should have seen better. They should have known better. But just hang on a minute. The other example I will use is uh, what happened the day of the crucifixion of Jesus. If we had been there and had been able to do so and had asked every person in that drama to explain their understanding of what was happening, Everybody in that drama would have been able to have a good reason for the actions that they carried out. The soldiers, the disciples who ran away, Pilate, they were all just doing what they thought the circumstances demanded of them. Now, what is one of the primary ethical values in a capitalistic culture? Just do your job. Do what we pay you to do. You're not paid to spend time on the internet or to play games at work. You just do your job and what you're doing. It's, if, we, if we're in that mindset, it's really hard to see another path. That's why we need prophets. That's why we need teachers. Or if you want to tone that down just a little bit, make it a little bit more comfortable, that's why we need a spiritual practice. Mm. That's why we need to open ourselves to new insights and new ways of, of thinking about things, to be challenged by things. So here's the heresy. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We are at the end of doctrinal theology and the belief paradigm. And I'm going to spend some time on this a little bit more today, and I think we'll come back to this in, in subsequent uh, presentation. What I'm saying is that having the right set of beliefs and believing the right thing, 
which may at one time have been useful, isn't useful or helpful anymore. It's brought us across the river. I got this analogy from the teachings of Buddha. But we need to put the craft that has carried us this far down and walk from now on on our own. That's one of the things a miracle means when, it, when he talks about mature faith, adult faith. When he talks about the, when, the, when the disciple arrives, when the disciple grows up, um, we need to be empowered in living our lives by the connection that we have with all of God's children, with each other. And that will be what we can do. That will be the way that we create, develop the power to create a different world. And I think that everybody in their hearts has a vision for the kind of world they want to live in, for the kind of world they really want their children to live in. But not all people are going about trying to create that world in wise and useful ways. Mm-hmm. Do you know how, so the horse and the buffalo are in the same sort of species category. And the way that the horse evolved into the buffalo, you know, the the horse is more of a prey, not a predator. So the, the story that can be told is that the horses were running away from their predator. And one horse in that herd decided, I don't want to run anymore. Turned around, lowed its head, and embraced the impact of the predator. Passed that trait on to the offspring and eventually that evolved into the buffalo that lows its head and I never resists. heard that. So what I'm saying is that right, this, this evolutionary tactic of kind of lowering our heads and saying, this is no longer useful. Me being chased by the predator, it ain't fun. Mm-hmm. So I'm you know, turning around and deciding to do something different is the unique thing about humans is embodying our choice and saying, I can choose to do something different. And it is uncomfortable. The first time I heard something like this was in this very room from Marcus Borg. Mm. And he was talking about, although I'm, I'm going further than Borg, but what Borg said was, you know people who believe all the right things mm-hmm. and are still jerks. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm a jerk sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so here we are in this sort of phase of discomfort and sitting in that truth is, is confronting. It's confrontational. We must confront something. We must turn around and kind of face the predator and lower our heads. It requires a look at how the systems in which we've participated have informed our behaviors and beliefs and asking ourselves, are those the behaviors and beliefs that are serving the most people most of the time? So it requires a kind of both-and-ness of seeing, and probably not unlike many folks, I grew up acclimated to a singular worldview, which I thought, of course, was the right, the right one. I equated being American with my race, my religion, and my economic status. I was reading W.E.B. Du Bois recently, who wrote um, Souls of Black Folks in the early 1900s, and he writes about this notion of double consciousness. He says, it is a sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity, 
One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro and an American, both and-ness. Though the terms and the conditions might have changed since the early 1900s when he wrote this, I can understand why the sentiment still remains so relevant. My kids, to some degree, are already being taught a kind of double consciousness. You act this way in one situation, you act this way in another. The circumstances of our current society have made that necessary. I've been thinking it's not altogether a bad idea for white Americans or dominant culture to experience this kind of double consciousness, to acknowledge the reality as we thought it was, and to be open to what reality might actually be. This requires us to be open to both grieving and creativity. Cindy talked about this role of grief and realizing that the systems that we've abided by may not actually serve the greater whole. So we're letting go and we're holding on in a single breath. I love this poem by Annie Lightheart. It's called The Second Music. Now I understand that there are two melodies playing, one below the other, one easier to hear, the other lower, steady, perhaps more faithful for being less heard, yet always present. When all other things seem lively and real, this one fades, yet the notes of it touch as gently as fingertips as the sound of the names laid over each child at birth. I want to stay in that music without striving or cover if the truth of our lives is what it is playing. The telling is so soft that this mortal time, this irrevocable change, becomes beautiful. I stop and stop again to hear the second music. I hear the children in the yard, a train, then birds. All this is in it and will be gone. I set my ear to it as I would to a heart. So a deep listening, I believe, is needed to wake up to kind of the pulse of those who have suffered to keep our ideas of an America that perhaps never was alive. It has been really hard for me to be present at the same time to some very real skepticism and kind of peeling away of what I thought was true and hold on to hope that a new picture can be painted. I think of this as like a process of individuation. In the family context, the child at different stages of life individuates through, from the family of origin. It happens in early childhood, it happens again in adolescence, it happens in adulthood, where we must find ourselves an individual. It's painful, it's often controversial, fraught with defensiveness and pain as the daughter or son tries to establish herself from the family of origin. I think this time demands from us a kind of ideological individuation. So you mentioned what Sydney, Cindy said about the three types of racism, interpersonal, deliberate, cultural or implied messaging, and systemic. I'm going to guess that most of us don't really identify with the first. We're not in groups that um, declare white supremacy or whiteness superior over. But all of us have been influenced by two and three, and we must just be in reality about that. One of the implied messages, for example, is that when a black person is targeted, harmed, or killed by law enforcement, that they must have done something wrong to deserve it. 
our media, our minds, look for ways to justify it because the uncomfortable truth of the injustice is hard to bear. This has become known as the he's no angel defense. So in the case of George Floyd, who was unarmed and did not resist, all sorts of things were brought up from, well, he's used drugs in the past to he had been arrested or he had this issue in the past. Bringing the past, he's no angel into the current situation as opposed to looking at the current situation of injustice. These things in no way justify his killing, in no way. But the messaging works on us. To contrast, when we have had in the past mostly white mass shooters of things like churches, schools, concerts, when they're depicted in the news, the story tends to focus on the mental health issues of the person who did the shooting. Such attack evokes compassion, while the formal, former involves blame. Again, this is cultural messaging. So what's the most natural thing we want to do when we're uncomfortable? <laughs> we want to fix it. We want to stop the bleeding. We feel bad and we rush out to volunteer or help or repent, but we forget to notice that sometimes in doing those things, we're still centering our experience of needing to feel better instead of servicing greater ideals of inequity or just sitting with the discomfort that something ain't right. I think back to when my friend Dr. Cleve Tinsley was here a year or so ago and he talked about the difference between solidarity and friendship. Solidarity means that I value your freedom regardless of whether I like you. We don't have to be friends for me to want you to be treated with dignity. I love Jackie's question in her handout, which was, how do our norms enable or disable multiracial or multi-ethnic connecting? And then later, how can we imagine new norms? And the discomfort, we're sitting with both. What has happened? What do we need to imagine anew? I keep going back to this line in Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail that implores whether we will be extremists for love or for hate. Again, the choice of keeping on running from the predator or turning and lowering our heads to face it. To imagine and embody new norms requires a necessary tension. MLK wrote about the necessity of tension for growth. When this tension is brought out into the opening through protest or disruption, it forces folks to confront prejudices and unconscious assumptions. And we can choose to react to them with fear or with curiosity. This is not easy. I am not trying to paint that picture, but it is necessary. Teilhard also wrote that in any process of change or evolution, it is inevitable that there shall be pain. The world is an immense groping, an immense search. Its progress can take place only at the expense of many failures and many wounds. I loved it that you used that poem. Mm. That's a beautiful poem. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I hadn't heard of her. Yeah. Um, a woman named um, Carrie Brady introduced me to that poem. Mm -hmm. And I love it because I think when, uh, and I'm going to take another step toward heresy here. <laughs> but the new paradigm if, if we are coming to old end of one paradigm, what's the new one? And the new one is, it can't be what we've had. So it's going to be more poetic. Mm -hmm. it's, going, it's going to be, uh, because I think poetry, uh, like other art, can participate more in non-duality. Oh, yeah. Um, 
So here we are in this era where we have this evolutionary process has, has bringing one paradigm to an end. It's coming to an end. Mm -hmm. And I think that the murder of George Floyd probably is the tipping point that, that has ushered in a new paradigm, certainly when it comes to matters of race and racial justice. What you just said about the difference between how when a person of color does something, how that's framed in, this, in the language, and when a white person does something, how that same thing is framed. I, I think more and more people are getting an understanding uh, or maybe a deeper pre appreciation of something that, that James Baldwin wrote when he said, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. And we've created it where these relatively conscious black people know that it's not always safe for them to say what really they feel in the white power establishment. Not in all contexts, for and sure. Not in all contexts, for sure. So this rage that Baldwin's talking about is not just about the fa fact that there is racial injustice. That's been here since before the founding of this country. It's about how prevalent and persistent white supremacy is in this country. And as long as we white people remain trapped in a history that we don't understand, the racial injustice will stay with us. So we all need to be released from this way of thinking, from this way of behaving. And this is going to require a movement to an entirely different paradigm. Now, I'm going to try to see if I can explain what I mean by this. And after oh, I wrote this, huh? Did I go too fast? No. <laughs> okay. No. I, 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 the more I thought about this, I'm not sure that my explanation uh, does it what I want it to. This is one of the most uh, famous optical illusions that's ever been created. It's over 100 years old. And um, what do you see? Uh, I first saw the rabbit and the immediately. Rabbit. I've seen it so many times, but. Uh, all those in the audience, what do you see? <laughs> a what? Olivia says a bird. Will, a bird. William said both. both. William has both and. He's trying to say he does his spiritual practice every day so he can see both. <laughs> yeah, well, this is called the duck. Yeah. Yeah. Re and it, yeah. Olivia just said that, that reading which direction you read from left to right right, can inform what, which one you see first. It's called the duck-rabbit mm -hmm. uh, illusion. It's over 100 years old. Now, if you first see this and you see uh, the duck, then you have to go looking for the rabbit. If you see the rabbit and you've been told that it's a duck, then you go looking for the duck. By the way, I got this idea from a man named John Tucker who has a book out called Zero Theology. I love that book. I just, it's been so informative. And so I want to give him credit for this idea and getting me pushed down the, this particular direction. Now, suppose that you, that, suppose there was a culture where no one had ever seen a rabbit. 
these people would, and somebody, some, some people might argue they could only see the duck. That's all they can see because they don't know what a rabbit is. They have no reference for a rabbit. So these people are very sincere when they say that they don't see the duck, but in this case, sincerity doesn't matter much. Hmm. Now, why is that? You can't be sincere about something you don't have an option about being insincere about. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. This is the part that I'm struggling to put into, into language. I think of it like intent versus impact. Yeah. If I say something and my intent is not to do harm, but it still harms you, my Im the impact is much harsher than the intent. Well, I'm talking about, uh, I, I agree with that and understand that. Yeah. I'm talking about just the simple ability to see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I don't have a category in my head for rabbit, I can't see it. Mm -hmm. I can't see it. It's not there for me to see. I sincerely don't see the rabbit. <laughs> And you can argue with me all day long because I don't have a reference in my head for rabbit. I can't see it. We live in a culture where even white nationalists see the rabbit. The issue is that some people value the rabbit more than the duck. Now, there was a time in history, in Christian history, in the Western world, where Christians only saw the duck. Now, they may have had doubts since, about what they were taught. Uh, they may have failed to live up to the moral teachings of what they, that they'd been handed. But they didn't have the option of seeing the world in a non-religious way. That was the only way they could see and in so far as religion is concerned, that option was not available, the option of, of, of doubt until the time of the Enlightenment. And then more and more people began to realize there's another way to see the world. Our problem or opportunity insofar as a real shift in racial justice issues are concerned involves not only how and whether we see the duck rabbit image, but also what interpretation we put on what we see. So I want to show you another picture. This is not an optical illusion. Now I guarantee you, with some notable exceptions, that white people and black people see a different reality in this image. We, we see it differently from a racial perspective because we've been given a different set of glasses through which to look at a story like this. White people can see this as a regrettable thing with a variety of reactions. Black people can see it as a re regrettable thing too, but black people know in their heart of hearts that if the roles had been reversed here and it had been a black officer who killed a, a white person, the outcome would have been dramatically different. That's white supremacy. Black parents have conversations with children that white 
parents don't even think about having. I got stopped a couple of times in my high school years for some shenanigans I pulled that I don't want to go into. I've been stopped by cops so many times. I've gotten so many speeding tickets. Have you really? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. well, I'm a lot better than you. Mm-hmm. You're a better person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm thinking that had I been a black person, I might not be here having this conversation with you. Aware black and white people see this picture of the death of George Floyd and react based on interpretations they give to what they see. If white people remain trapped in what is seen through the racial lenses the white culture has given them, they will see the same picture that black people see, but they will give it a different interpretation. And if we don't find release from this history and recalibrate the identity that we give to all people, there's no exit for us from this. If we keep saying things like, well, this is a terrible thing, but you know, just a few bad apples in every bunch or something like that, rather than confronting the white supremacy that creates this scenario in the first place, we're gonna keep getting what we got, and that is a definition of insanity I'm sure you're familiar with. By the way, I want to be clear, this is not a matter of feelings. Mm. Um, I grew up in a culture where it was entirely possible for me to love Ruth Harlan, the black woman who played a significant role in my upbringing. I understand that Thomas Jefferson also loved some black people in his way. But no matter how much I or my family loved Ruth, she was still part of a system that denied her full participation and virtually guaranteed her poverty status. White supremacy is the management and maintenance of systems that benefit white people at the expense of black people. And to live in the United States is to be a recipient of the system, both white and black people. We're handed a script in a country that endured slavery for over 250 years. Now, it's both difficult and frightening to change or challenge that reality for many people, but if we are to grow in our understanding of an ability to embrace and a willingness to express the mandate given to us in the teachings of Jesus. There's no doubt where our energies must go in this particular time, in this particular country. Now, we've been using the phrase empowered, empowering community, and I want to read you a definition of it. Uh, I I first got this um, understanding, as I've said, from Daramut Amurku. Uh, And here's the book of his that I'm currently reading one called Inclusivity, a Gospel Mandate. And I want to read you his definition of the empowered, empowering community. Actually, he calls it the companionship of empowerment. And it goes both ways. The companionship of empowerment is based on a worldview that is all-embracing in cosmic and planetary terms. It forthrightly condemns and revises all posturing at patriarchal domination. It turns imperial kingship on its head, replacing it with an empowering kinship 
It invokes a radical incarnational anthropology inclusive of peoples of every race, creed, and color. It counters all semblance of violence in favor of nonviolent liberation. For Jesus, the primordial discipline, the primordial disciple of this new empowerment, there are no chosen nations or tribes or peoples. All are equally embraced and all have a place at the open table of universal life. For far too long, we Christians have compromised this foundational vision, largely because we have espoused to God who's been made the object of our patriarchal projections of election and exclusion. That is not the God of Christian faith but a divine character tour sanctioned by patriarchal religiosity that has long outlived its usefulness. Mm -hmm. That's my heresy for today. Yeah, you know from space, there are no boundaries between lands. Right. There are no distinctions between us and them. There are no distinctions between this country and another. This is Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful um, illustration is that we all ought to act like we've been stranded on the moon in yeah. a spaceship. Look at it from that direction. Yeah. And you know, this kind of phase three of integration, of integrating the shadow and the light, I think we could spend, we can start there next week. Um, is this, this how do we integrate what, what we have learned in the past to what needs to be known in the future? Um, one of the <laughs> cultural symbols I love, of course, is Harry Potter. And he, in my, one of the movies, The Order of the Phoenix, is really grappling with how anger is showing up in him and believes he's turning bad. And he says to his godfather, I'm terrified of becoming bad, of becoming like Voldemort, his nemesis. And Sirius, his godfather says in his wise way, I want you to listen to me very carefully, Harry. You're not a bad person. You're a very good person who bad things have happened to. Besides, the world isn't split into good people and death eaters. We've all got both light and dark inside of us. And what matters is what part we choose to act on. Again, I, I, the image of the lowering our heads and choosing to act a different way. That's who we really are. So the acceptance of our shadow is the only possibility for seeing how bright the light is. And the tension there is that while we are becoming friends with the dark, not just our personal shadow and all the unexamined beliefs of our culture, but our, it's, as Brian Stevenson says, um, some are rendered more valuable than others. We must simultaneously imagine new ways of being in our two-ness, we become whole. I wanna say this, equity is not a radical idea. Just like now we don't think of a heliocentric or expanding universe as a radical idea. It should be a foregone conclusion, a birthright. Here's one more poem to help us sort of see our way into right religion. It's called Two Songs by William Blake. I heard an angel singing when the day was springing. Mercy, pity, and peace are the world's release. So he sang all day over the new mown hay. I forgot to show this. Till the sun went down and the haycocks looked brown. I heard a devil curse over the heath in the first. Mercy would be no more if there were nobody poor. And pity no more could be if all were happy as ye. And mutual fear brings peace. Miseries increase our mercy, pity, and peace. At his curse, the sun went down and the heavens gave a frown. 
What this poem says to me is that in any needs to rally around justice implies that injustice is still present. Being merciful implies that mercilessness is still present. Integration is learning how to hold both of these while continuing angling our bodies toward mercy and justice so that fighting for them is rendered unnecessary. I think we have to live as if this were possible. So I think we'll probably um, continue this conversation next week in light of um, the election mm -hmm. and the aftermath. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk about uh, now what? Mm -hmm. There's a, there is there is a, um, another world and we're living in it. Yeah. Yeah. And we live with that faith and, and with that hope. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargoes, so watch your step, and we will see you here next Sunday. Stay safe. Mm.